1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Elizabeth Goldring, author of the book Nicholas Hilliard Life of an Artist. Elizabeth, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, I'm currently an honorary reader at the Center for the Study of the Renaissance at the University of Warwick here in the UK. My research interests and publications tend to be interdisciplinary, often straddling the boundaries between literature, history, and art history. I guess if I had to try to come up with an umbrella term to describe my, my work and my research interests, um, 16th and 17th century court culture would probably be as good a description as, as anything. And I'm particularly interested in the relations between Tudor Stewart England and the European mainland, the continental renaissance, if you will.
1: I I find that description absolutely fascinating because it really does encapsulate all that you cover in the book. What led you to Nicholas Hilliard as a subject, and why did you decide to undertake a biography of him?
0: Well, I think I was drawn to Hilliard's life story and to his art for many of the reasons you've just just hinted at, that that his story seemed to naturally lend itself to all of the topics I've always been interested in. Um, But on a practical level, I suppose, the, uh, the Hilliard project grew directly out of my previous book, which was called Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, and the World of Elizabethan Art. And that book was an attempt to reconstruct the picture collection assembled by Robert Dudley, who was Elizabeth I's favorite, and to also... Shed new light on the patronage networks that Dudley was embedded within. And Hilliard played a part in that story because he was a beneficiary of Dudley's patronage and painted him on various occasions. And I noticed when I was working on the, the Dudley book that there were a number of questions about Hilliard's life and art that I couldn't easily find answers to in the existing scholarship on Hilliard. And I didn't really need to find answers to those questions to write the Dudley book. But the questions lingered in my mind. And once the Dudley book was finished and I was casting about for new projects, I kept going back to Hilliard and thinking perhaps there's scope to have a go at trying to find answers to those questions or at least suggest some possible answers. And then when I realized that 2019 would mark the 400th anniversary of Hilliard's death, and that the National Portrait Gallery in London was planning a retrospective of his works. It all just seemed to come together and to make sense to use that moment of celebrating his life and death in 2019 as an excuse to revisit it all through a new biography. And so that's that's really how it all came about.
1: And and for me, I, I, I don't, claim to be an expert on, on Tudor history or art history, but I, 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 I Nicholas Hilliard was something of a discovery for me. I was wondering if you could perhaps I- explain briefly for people who might not be uh, familiar with who he is, why he is uh, important, what's his significance in terms of both uh, English history during the late 16th, early 17th centuries and the history of art?
0: Absolutely, um, a very good question. Hilliard, as I mentioned in passing a moment ago, was um, a portrait painter. He was the first native-born British artist to achieve international fame in his own lifetime. He portrayed virtually everybody who was anybody at the courts of Elizabeth I and James I, as well as an awful lot of people who wanted to be somebody. Having your portrait painted by Hilliard was a real status symbol, a sign that, that you had arrived. He... Counted the Medici, the Valois, and the Habsburgs as admirers on the continent, while at home, poets such as John Dunn sang Hilliard's praises in Dunn's case memorably, claiming that a hand or an eye by Hilliard was worth a whole history by a lesser painter. Other writers of the day hailed Hilliard as England's answer to the greatest painters of antiquity and Renaissance Italy, and by implication as the founding father of British art, a view that Hilliard himself did a a lot to encourage by putting pen to paper to write a treatise on painting, which was one of the first English vernacular treatises on the visual arts and very much self-consciously in the mould of Italian Renaissance treatises, such as Alberti's treatise on painting. Like his heroes. Oh, sorry.
1: Go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I, I was going to say that. That what uh, I, I thought was especially fascinating for me was uh, your description of his miniature work or, or, or limiting. And, and this is something that I, I feel that uh, what we're doing today doesn't really adequately convey because you're you're not just writing a biography of, of Nicholas Hill. You're, you have this this gorgeously illustrated book, and, and I especially thought it was very fascinating because what you do in the book is you. Uh, you take portions of the, the 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 images that that you feature of, of his of his miniatures, and you focus on them to show the development of his techniques. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a little bit on on, on what you know limiting is, uh, and, and and what Nicholas Hilliard does with it that is really so exquisite and, and really helps to make his reputation what it is.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, Hilliard worked in a wide range of media. He had originally trained as a goldsmith, but his Chief claim to fame both then and now was for portrait miniatures, also known as limines, for reasons I'll come to in a moment. <laughs> These are tiny, exquisitely detailed portraits painted in watercolor on vellum, using, if you can imagine this, a brush made out of squirrel hairs set in a bird quill and mounted on a wooden stick. Most of Hilliard's miniatures are about the size of a jam jar lid, but some are much, much smaller. Some are equivalent in size to a modern watch face or even a cuff link, um, and to think that he was doing all this um, before artificial lighting, allegedly without any magnification, though I'm somewhat doubtful. I, I think that his claims never to required magnification may be, um, may be um, slightly exaggerated. Because of their diminutive size, miniatures were obviously highly portable, and in an era long before the invention of The photograph, long before the invention of the mobile phone and its instantly communicable imagery, miniatures helped to create intimacy across distances. So they were frequently exchanged between loved ones and were also important tools of diplomacy and statecraft. Rulers would often exchange miniatures when signing peace treaties or when engaging in marriage negotiations. In terms of materials and techniques, miniature descends directly from the late medieval tradition of manuscript illumination, and this is how we come to the terminology that Hilliard would have used, which is limbing for miniature painting or to limb for the act of miniature painting. Um, To limb comes from the Latin luminare, to illuminate, so that the name that was used for this art form in the 16th century directly reflected the art form's descent from, from medieval manuscript illumination. But though Hilliard used the basic uh, materials and techniques that manuscript illuminators would have used, he brought a lot of new tricks to um, the art of miniature painting, many of which reflected his training as a goldsmith. So, for example, he used real gold and real silver as opposed to gold-colored pigment and silver-colored pigment when he was um, portraying his sitter's jewels and when he was portraying gold thread or silver thread in their costumes. And of course, this meant that his miniatures shimmered and um, just dazzled the eye when when the light would catch them. You have to use a bit of imagination today because the silver that Hilliard used has tarnished with the passage of time in most cases. So what often would have been um, very glittery um, originally now has gone a bit. Um, black in places from oxidation. Uh, Hilliard anticipated that this might happen and apparently squirted garlic juice on his miniatures to try to prevent that happening, but alas, <laughs> doesn't seem to have worked. But, um, but anyway, uh, contemporaries commented repeatedly on how extraordinary um, the use of real gold and real silver was. And Hilliard was also famous amongst contemporaries for his very realistic portrayals of jewels. And again, this probably reflects his training as a goldsmith. So he invented new formulas for portraying rubies, sapphires, other colored stones, and also for portraying... pearls, which many of his contemporaries, particularly fellow miniature painters, were keen to get the recipes for, um, because Hilliard's jewels looked so much more realistic than anyone else's. But we know, for example, from the treatise that he wrote, which contains a few of his recipes, that for pearls, he would, in addition to white pigment, apply um, some silver highlights, again, real silver, as opposed to silver pigment. Um, which created a, a sort of heightened luster, a heightened um, pearly effect. Again, that has somewhat diminished with the passage of time because of oxidation. But um, from many, many contemporary descriptions of his miniatures, which focus on the quality of his pearls, the quality of his jewels, it's clear that this is a real talking point. And one of the, the selling points that, that made Hilliard's miniatures stand out from those of his contemporaries
1: I can especially appreciate that, given how the people who could afford these miniatures tended to be the, the the wealthy. There was a lot of conspicuous display of that wealth, and of course Absolutely. they they would definitely want miniatures that 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 feature that in in the most uh, visible and 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 flattering way possible.
0: Absolutely, um, having your portrait painted, whether in miniature or life sized in oils, was very much in this period about um, identity and rank and advertising. Um, just what your place in society was advertising just how much money you had Um, so if you had fine jewels and fine clothing you certainly wanted to be portrayed wearing them, you wanted to to really flaunt it and you're absolutely right that the people who were commissioning miniatures from Hilliard were fairly affluent, he for most of his career charged about three pounds for a miniature painted from the life, that doesn't include a setting, settings were optional extras, and really the sky was the limit in terms of how much you might pay for a setting. But the basic fee of three pounds, which, of course, doesn't sound like very much to us, was an (laughs) enormous sum. In the 16th century, uh, craftsmen in Elizabethan Chester earned about three pounds in an entire year. So to commission something from Hilliard, you tended to be... If not from the aristocracy or the landed gentry, at the very least, a self-made um, successful merchant or member of the urban elite.
1: Hmm. What makes this uh, Hilliard's... Uh... Career so fascinating is is his background because one of the things I I, I kept thinking about I, 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 given that you were making this point period, periodically in it is is the 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 notion of how these unique circumstances arose. I, mm. I, I, you were describing his, how he worked these uh, miniatures and how he introduced real metals and 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 you and you mentioned already about how that comes from this background as a goldsmith, which is not the background one might initially think of uh, of for a painter. How, how, how does you know, what is you know what are uh, Hilliard's uh, you know beginnings and 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 how does he you know start out in, in in a career as a craftsman and an artist?
0: It's it's a very interesting story um, because Hilliard was born in Exeter in the west of England um, in about 1547 into a family full of goldsmiths. His father was a goldsmith. Both of his grandfathers were goldsmiths. Um, um, two of Hilliard's three brothers grew up to be goldsmiths as he originally trained to be. So I think clearly the expectation from the moment Nicholas Hilliard was born was that he would follow in the footsteps of his father and both grandfathers and also become a goldsmith. Um, And certainly that is how... He started off, but somewhere along the line, midway through an apprenticeship with a man called Robert Brandon, who was a leading London goldsmith, Hilliard seems to have changed course and decided alongside his duties as an apprentice goldsmith to learn to paint in miniature. Um, Quite an unconventional choice, not least because at this time in England, painters were generally speaking considered to be rather lower in the pecking order than goldsmiths. They would have had a lot of contact, however, because as I mentioned earlier, um, miniatures were often set in elaborate, bejeweled gold settings. So there would have been some occasions, certainly, in day-to-day uh, business life, when goldsmiths and miniature painters must have crossed paths and needed to collaborate on particular commissions. But To decide to branch out from goldsmithery and also become a miniature painter was most unusual. And we don't know exactly at what point in his seven-year apprenticeship Hilliard decided to do this. We don't know exactly from whom he learned to paint. I suspect he had more than one teacher. By chance, the period when he was apprenticed as a goldsmith in London was a period when London was absolutely flooded with talented Foreign artists, mainly from France and the Low Countries, who came to England to escape um, religious persecution as Protestants on the continent, and so it was really a very uh, febrile melting pot. London in the 1560s, and I'm sure that Hilliard um, was an um, as was an unexpected beneficiary of um, the religious upheavals of the era. Um, but it, as you mentioned earlier, there are so many aspects, um, so many moments in which chance played a role. Hilliard was very keen in his treatise on painting, which also has some extensive autobiographical passages. He's very keen um, in those autobiographical passages to present himself as destined from birth to be a great miniature painter, as chosen by God for this one particular path. And he's clearly writing with an eye towards and mythmaking, but one of the things that was so interesting to me when researching his life was the number of moments, particularly in the early years of his life, when he found himself on a particular path largely by chance. Um, he had a very formative period as a child on the continent between the ages of about eight and twelve and a half when After the restoration of Catholicism under Mary Tudor, he, um, from a very staunchly Protestant family, fled Exeter, where he had grown up, um, and went into religious exile on the continent with another Exeter family, the Bodleys, and moved first from Basel on the German Dutch border, what is now the German Dutch border, to Frankfurt, and then finally ended up in Geneva, where Uh, young Nicholas and the Bodleys worshipped in John Knox's congregation for about two and a half years. And these experiences on the continent, um, though no one of course would have predicted this or foreseen it at the time, necessarily must have exposed young Hilliard to art and ideas about art that he never would have seen and encountered had he spent his childhood in Exeter during less religiously and politically turbulent times. So for example, I speculate in the book that it was whilst in Frankfurt for about a year, that Hilliard likely encountered um, the art of Albert Dürer, who became one of his heroes. Um, We know that um, a very famous altarpiece by Dürer called the Heller Altarpiece was by this stage a famous tourist attraction in Frankfurt. We also know that Dürer, though he was long dead by this time, uh, had been a stalwart of the Frankfurt Book fair, and his prints and books still were sold each year at the Frankfurt Book Fair. So I think it's entirely likely that, completely by chance, as a boy in religious exile in Frankfurt, young Hilliard heard about Dürer's life and legacy, possibly saw examples of his work. Certainly, in later years, Dürer would become a kind of role model for Hilliard. Both were the sons of small town goldsmiths who went on to achieve international famous painters and writers on painting. In the process, really, in both cases, transforming the status of the artist in their homelands from um, a craftsman to an artist with a capital A. This is a shift that in England occurs very much during the course of Hilliard's lifetime and largely in response to his own determination to improve his own lot in life and with it the lot of um, the miniature painter more generally. <laughs>
1: And as you point out, you know, had he been born a few years earlier or a few years later, he wouldn't have had that opportunity at that really formative moment in his life. As-
0: exactly. Yes. Yes. I mean, had, had he been born, yes, a few years in either direction, um, he almost certainly wouldn't have found himself in, in exile on the continent. And the entire course of his life, I think, could have been quite different. I, I suspect he might never never have left Exeter and might never have taken up miniature painting. So, um, yes, just extraordinary to think um, what a a role Chance plays. And similarly, his um, apprenticeship in London, um, the circumstances leading up to his landing, this plum apprenticeship with this leading London goldsmith, had never before been uh, explained. And... One of the more exciting days in my um, uh, period of research on this book occurred when at Goldsmiths Hall in London, going through various manuscript materials relating to the Goldsmiths Company in the 16th century, I discovered completely by chance that Nicholas Hilliard's father, Richard, who, as mentioned, was an extra goldsmith. Um, about a year or so before Nicholas took up this Um, apprenticeship in London found himself in correspondence with Robert Brandon the man who subsequently became uh, Nicholas's master initially over the matter of a gold chain which proved um, to be filled with lead or deceitfully filled with lead as Richard put it in one of his letters to um, the Goldsmiths Company and to Robert Brandon and it was in an effort to um, right the wrong of this gold chain produced by another fraudulent goldsmith, That Richard Hilliard found himself communicating with one of the top goldsmiths in London, and presumably at some point in the midst of that communication thought, hang on, this could be a good opportunity for my eldest son. Um, We can't, of course, pinpoint the exact moment when That thought popped into Richard Hilliard's head, but it can't be coincidence that after he'd spent a year corresponding with Robert Brandon about this deceitful gold chain that Nicholas Hilliard finds himself placed um, as an apprentice in Robert Brandon's household.
1: What was that experience of apprenticeship like? For Nicholas, was it arduous? Did was was Brandon a particularly indulgent master? How exactly did he? And what evidence do we have of his art developing during that period?
0: Well, it's a very good question because it's it's impossible to say on a day to day basis exactly what Nicholas Hilliard got up to during his apprenticeship. The records just don't survive that would tell us that information, but. Quite a lot is known about Brandon's career during that period. And we know that apprentices were meant to shadow their masters. So one can extrapolate from what is known of Brandon's activities to make educated guesses about what we think Hilliard was probably up to. And, of course, we know that Hilliard would have lived under Brandon's roof for the seven years of his apprenticeship. That was standard practice. Um, But we know, for example, that Brandon... um, had a lot of ties to the royal mint. So Hilliard likely would have spent time at the royal mint, which was then located in the tower. And of course, a byproduct of that, again, unintended, um, would have been that Hilliard would have seen firsthand um, examples of royal image making, um, which may, in later years, have proved useful to him when it was his job to create images of the queen, Similarly, Brandon was, um, like many goldsmiths of the period, also a moneylender and a banker. One of his um, most important um, clients in this regard was Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, the Queen's favourite. And so it's not impossible that Hilliard, perhaps acting in a secretarial capacity, would have accompanied Brandon sometimes when he went to discuss terms with individuals such as Dudley, and such experiences might potentially have provided Hilliard with a glimpse behind doors that otherwise would have been closed to him. Um, but certainly, a lot of the work of being an apprentice, particularly in the first half of an apprenticeship, tended to involve dog's body work, carrying heavy boxes of equipment, um, basically doing Um, Errand running, anything that one's master did not want to have to do himself. It tended to be only in the second half of an apprenticeship that one would actually start to learn how to make things and how to to do things. Um, And at what point in that seven-year trajectory Hilliard decided to branch out and learn how to paint, we don't know. Um, But it surely is relevant that during the years Hilliard spent apprenticed Brandon. Um, lots of new ideas about painting and painters were in the air in London. It was during these years that Thomas Hobie's famous English translation of Castiglione's Il Cortigiano, The Courtier, uh, was available in print and, in fact, went through multiple printed editions. And, of course, this was a, a very influential book that argued that courtiers and aspiring courtiers needed to learn about painting and that this was an important part of being a cultured, civilized person. And that was, in many ways, a new idea in England, but yet it really took off in the 1560s just as as Hilliard was finding his feet in London. Um, similarly, it was during the 1560s that two of Elizabeth's leading courtiers, Dudley and William Cecil, took it upon themselves to keep an eye out for a painter who might be up to the task of creating a new image of the Queen. Elizabeth frequently needed to exchange portraits of herself with other um, monarchs, and it's clear from various surviving uh, written sources, mainly correspondence, that she was often rather embarrassed when exchanging portraits, particularly with other queens, such as Mary Queen of Scots and Catherine de' Medici, by the disparity in the quality of the images that she was sending out versus the quality of the images she was receiving. There was a real dearth at this point in England of decent portrait painters, and Hilliard may well have spotted that there was a gap in the market and that Leading courtiers and the Queen herself were on the lookout for someone capable of competing with the best portrait painters that continental European courts had to offer. So I think there's a a whole range of explanations for how and why Hilliard possibly thought about branching out from goldsmithery into portrait painting, even if we can't pinpoint the exact moment that it happened or precisely who, who taught him.
1: Does he have to wait until he concludes his apprenticeship to begin to uh, produce paintings, or uh, does he begin that process uh, later on in the apprenticeship?
0: Another really interesting question. He may well have been painting portraits before the apprenticeship ended, but if so, no concrete evidence of that has yet come to date. The earliest evidence, both written and um, visual, that survives for his work as a portraitist is from the early 1570s, so um, shortly after he became a freeman of the Goldsmiths Company. He becomes a freeman in 1569, starts taking on apprentices, some of whom seem to have specialized in goldsmithery, some of whom seem to have specialized in painting in about 1570, 1571. Meanwhile, Hilliard's brother, who had also come up from Exeter to um, become a goldsmith in London, but seems to have specialized only in the goldsmithery side of things, um, seems sometimes to have worked in partnership with him, possibly producing um, settings for the miniatures that Hilliard was producing. The turning point in terms of Hilliard's career as a miniature painter, comes in 1571, when he was still very young, only about 24. Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, who he probably would have crossed paths with whilst apprenticed to Robert Brandon, commissions a miniature of himself from Hilliard, which Dudley then sends to Catherine de' Medici, the Queen Mother of France. Dudley and Catherine regularly exchanged paintings. Catherine de' Medici loves the miniature that Dudley sends her, immediately writes back requesting one of Queen Elizabeth made in the same fashion, at which point Dudley scrambles to organize for Elizabeth to sit to Hilliard. And one of the very exciting moments in my research was when I was able to piece together um, various clues which enabled me to reconstruct that first sitting, which I was able to establish took place over a period of about 10 days or two weeks in the summer of 1571, in July actually, um, at Hampton Court Palace, with some of the um, time that Elizabeth spent posing for Hilliard taking place outdoors um, in one of the gardens at the palace. And then the miniature was dispatched to Catherine de' Medici as soon as it was finished, and she was delighted with it. And from this moment, really, Hilliard never looked back. He... For the rest of his life for nearly 50 years enjoyed patronage at the very highest levels both in England and on the continent.
1: And that for me is what makes that question of, of when he really is able to start practicing, practicing his art so fascinating because basically you're talking about a two-year window from when he concludes his apprenticeship to when he suddenly bursts onto the scene as this internationally acclaimed painter. And it's fascinating to consider, was it was it such a genius that he picked it up that quickly, or was there a whole development process that, unfortunately, we just can't access?
0: It's such a good question. Um, Hilliard, in in the autobiographical passages of his treatise, is is very. Um, um, as I mentioned, to present himself as someone who was born um, with an extraordinary God-given talent selected um, by God at birth for greatness. Um, and he's very cagey um, on the subject of whether he ever had any formal instruction at all. He would he would like it to appear um, as though um, he just Produced all of this um, without any formal training at all. I think that is is most unlikely. Though undoubtedly, he he must have have been uh, blessed with with great natural abilities as well. Um, but unfortunately, at the moment, it isn't possible um, to chart um, uh, a gradual process um, of um, of learning, of development, he really does, in terms of what has survived in the way of miniatures and examples of his work, suddenly seem to burst onto the scene as a fully formed talent. Um, it may be that there are miniatures that have survived from the 1560s that are early examples of his work that have not yet been connected to him because perhaps they are relatively unformed compared to what we're used to thinking of as Hilliard's work. Um, that is um, one of the great questions. Um, but it's also complicated by the fact that the survival rate for paintings, um, not just miniatures, all sorts of paintings in this period is very, very low indeed. Um, miniatures, of course, are, are, are particularly vulnerable Um uh, moisture is is no friend to them. Sunlight fades them. There are all sorts of ways in which they can be destroyed, damaged, distorted. So um, it is it, it is not always um, an entirely straightforward task to um, try to work from what has happened to survive to reconstruct the the full picture. And sometimes, as at the moment, is the case with Hilliard's. Um, Possible work as a miniaturist um, prior to 1571. The evidence just hasn't survived or hasn't yet been located and identified as as work by Hilliard.
1: It, it makes for an especially interesting contrast because you chronicle his career uh, to the to the degree that you do. Because he, as you mentioned, you know he, he's he's uh, you know becoming famous in his mid-20s, and then he undertakes this uh, remarkable uh, advancement where he's not just emerging as an artist in London, but as you described, he goes to France and spends two years there.
0: Yes, absolutely. Between 1576 and late 1578, possibly early 1579, he um, is in France Um, as court painter to the Duke of Anjou, the younger brother of Henri III. And it's a very interesting episode. We know that he wanted to go to France um, in part to gain knowledge of French art and artists. And in that, he certainly succeeded because um, works that he produced towards the end of his time in France and in the years after, uh, the 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 period that he spent in France do um, in many cases show the influence of the work of the great Francois Clouet. Um, Clouet was dead by the time um, Hilliard arrived in France, but no doubt Hilliard would have had many, many opportunities to see examples of Clouet's work. Um, so in terms of gaining knowledge of French art and artists, he, um, he certainly achieved that goal. His other reason for going to France um, seems to have been to um, buy himself some time away from the reach of the English courts to earn enough money to pay off his many creditors in London, a number of whom were threatening to sue. Hilliard was absolutely terrible with money, <laughs> and in spite of the um, the great success that he enjoyed in terms of um, having no difficulty attracting patronage at the highest levels, never lacking for work, he just could not um, amass any capital at all, in part because Elizabeth wasn't always terribly good about pain, um, but also because he really could not resist any get rich quick scheme um that came his way. Um and I think also had a real appetite for the finer things in life. The more he saw what life was like behind palace doors, the more he I think wanted to ape the lifestyle of the royal and aristocratic patrons that he was portraying. So at the time that he had this opportunity to go to France, he um, was in a very difficult situation financially, and I think the trip to France, which would have been an attractive option anyway, looked all the more attractive because it seemed a way of temporarily getting away from these many creditors in London, and with any luck, being able perhaps to save up enough money to pay them off when he got back. In, in the end, he who predictably didn't manage to save up um, the money. And in fact, his financial problems hadn't disappeared by the time he got back. But it was um, a very interesting and, I think, formative period um, that he had in France, though so not without its dramas. The, the French wars of religion were waging, uh, raging, and Billiard um, in all probability was expected by Queen Elizabeth, who, of course, would have had to give permission for him to take up this post, Um, as court painter to the Duke of Anjou. I suspect that Elizabeth expected him to do a bit of spying for her. That was pretty much standard practice at the Elizabethan court. Anyone granted a passport by the Queen was expected to keep their eyes and ears open for any useful intelligence that might happen to come their way. Hilliard would have been particularly well-placed to do this, having um, acquired excellent French during the time he had spent in Geneva as a child in um, Protestant exile. And of course, miniature painting was in many ways the perfect cover for a spy. Hilliard ideally liked to have an initial consultation with anyone that he was going to portray to discuss the requirements of the pose, and then um, liked for each miniature that he painted from the life to have three separate sittings, each lasting at least two hours, but potentially six or eight hours or even more, spread across several days all with Hilliard sitting just a few feet away from his subject. So in terms of gathering intel on Anjou himself and indeed on Henri Ancrettois, who we uh, know Hilliard also painted, um, it really would have been a a fantastic opportunity to to observe and to portray um, in all senses of the word. I think the trip to France is particularly interesting, however, um, from the point of view of the impact it had on Hilliard's self-confidence and him, his his sense of himself as, as an artist with a capital A. I mentioned earlier that the painter in England, at least at the time that Hilliard was born, occupied a fairly lowly status in the general social hierarchy, though that would change over the course of Hilliard's lifetime. But in France, certainly by the time Hilliard got there in the mid-1570s, um, the painter, a bit like the painter um, in Renaissance Italy, was increasingly being perceived as the practitioner of a learned liberal art rather than as a lowly manual laborer. And Hilliard certainly seems to have responded to this um, perception of the painter and his importance. And I think it's notable that it's whilst in France that Hilliard chooses to paint a self-portrait. This um, was in 1577, midway through his um, period at the French court. And interestingly, he chooses to portray himself um, as a gentleman, oh, well, actually, he looks very much like his own aristocratic um, patrons and sitters. The portrait is, in fact, very similar to one that Hilliard had done the previous year of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. And Hilliard has a very imperious gaze, um, coolly looking out at the viewer. I think on, when on the receiving end of that gaze, one slightly understands why some of Hilliard's fellow goldsmiths in London had complained that after he found royal favour with Elizabeth, he was given standing too much upon his reputation, by which they, no doubt, meant that he he got a bit full of himself. <laughs> um, and um, once I imagine Hilliard down um, at the pub on a Friday night with his fellow goldsmiths, just dropping names left, right, and centre. And this really comes through in the, the self-portrait. Um, it really is almost the mirror image of um, a portrait he had done the previous year of Dudley, who at this stage was his chief aristocratic patron. Um, and strikingly, Hilliard, unlike a lot of 16th century artists who executed self-portraits um, and included paintbrushes or painters' palettes or other tools, Hilliard includes none of that. So there's no um, no possible. Um, Paint of manual labour in this image. Um, the only clue, indeed, to his the fact that he's a painter is really in the the artistry of the image itself. Um, but nothing so obvious as a reference to um, a paintbrush or a painter's palette. So this trip in this 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 period of two and a half years or so in France is really um, extraordinary uh, form. Uh, Formative, and when Hilliard comes back to England in late 1578 or early 1579, he's more in demand than ever before, and one presumes even more full of himself than, and no doubt even more insufferable around his fellow goldsmiths than he had been before he'd left, and um, really just goes from strength to strength at that point.
1: It's interesting to to consider that in. in- addition to what you were talking about regarding his, uh, conspicuous consumption, the degree to which he was doing it, not just because he had a sense of the finer things, but the felt, the, the fact that he might have been feeling that he had to, uh, you know, Put on not as much put on airs, but basically uh, present himself in that way. The, the the idea that you know, as we were talking about earlier, with the jewels uh, that you see in the miniatures, that you had to display yourself if you were to be getting that respect. And yet, you you also sense with Hilliard in those in those financial issues that he always seemed to have that that he really was 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 pushing past the limits of what he could realistically get away with uh, as you know, given even his income as an artist.
0: Yes, absolutely. He, um, he just seems to have spent any money that came his way almost immediately. And a leitmotif that runs throughout his entire adult life is his constant borrowing of money from friends, family, um, colleagues, former colleagues, um, former friends. He was forever falling out with other people over money. And, um, one of the richest sources of information about Hilliard's life and also really I think about um, his personality and Hilliard the Man are the many legal documents that survive from his many entanglements. Um, quite often he was sued because he failed to pay back money that he had borrowed. Um, and somewhat unattractively, he tended um, in these situations initially to deny that he'd ever borrowed the money in the first place. Um, if then presented with some sort of paperwork that um, revealed that statement to be a lie, he would invariably claim that he had repaid the money and that um, somehow um, that had been forgotten or not taken stock of. He um, he really had an awful lot of excuses and... Um, did not always behave in a a terribly attractive manner towards his own friends and family. Um, And also, and again, this unfortunately does not reflect terribly well on Hilliard the man, um, he was willing on occasion to trade for money on his royal connections. One of his many legal entanglements uh, makes abundantly clear that he was Willing um, for a fee um, to offer to um, introduce people to important courtiers to drop their name with the queen um, and this um, rather shocking me is is, is um, information that that comes to light in hilliard 's defense of his own actions in regard to one of his um, uh, disastrous financial entanglements um, so um, Hilliard the man was was, was clearly complicated person, not someone you would ever, ever in a million years want to have lent money to. (laughs) Um, And um, one of the things that was so striking to me uh, in in, in working on the book was this contrast between the extant works of art, which are so gloriously elegant, so um, wonderfully um, composed We know from his treatise that he was very, very orderly um, in his workshop, in his studio. He believed that cleanliness um, was all and any speck of dust, any speck of dandruff, um, any um, bit of saliva could potentially ruin a miniature in progress and cause it to need and cause him to have to discard it and start again. So he stressed the importance of needing to wear silk because it wouldn't shed in the way that, say, wool would. He stressed the importance of not speaking over the miniature lest uh, a bit of spittle land on it. So there's this extraordinary contrast between his work his working methods, the finished product, and his personal life, which was pretty much always in a state of disaster. He led this completely hand to existence and, and really lurched from one crisis to the next. Um, at one stage um, in the 1590s, really very much at the, the height of his career in many ways, he nearly lost. His workshop premises uh, which he had been renting from the goldsmith's company because for years and years and years he had failed to pay rent um, on the premises and eventually the goldsmith's company got fed up and threatened to turf him out um, he again showing a slightly unattractive strain to his character on this occasion called um, in various of his aristocratic um, patrons and got them to speak to the queen on his behalf and Goldsmith's company when told by the Queen and her leading courtiers that they needed to um, pipe down and give Hilliard a reduced rent and be prepared, if necessary, to go without payment of the rent, of course, did um, give in. But again, the the fact that Hilliard was... um, prepared to behave in such a a fashion does not um, reflect terribly well on him. And and one of the things that I found so fascinating was this this constant tension between um, uh, Hilliard the man, who was clearly very difficult, very complicated, um, and Hilliard the artist who produced these sublime works of art, which really define, I think, most people's um, perceptions of 16th and early 17th century England, even if one is not familiar with Hilliard's name, nine times out of 10, I would say that if you conjure up a mental image of an iconic figure from this age, whether it's Mary Queen of Scots or Francis Drake or Walter Raleigh, um, the image that comes into your head is probably derived from an image that Hilliard created. So um, there is just this extraordinary contrast between his work ethic and his undoubted natural ability, um, and yet this utterly shambolic personal life and a complete inability to manage his money. So much so that towards the end of his life, um, at the age of about seventy-one, he ended up in debtors' prison at one stage, which obviously uh, was 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 a real real low point.
1: That's the part of his life that I find so remarkably relevant today because we are having a a, a very different conversation about, you know, the the notion of do we esteem art that's produced by artists who are monsters? You know, this comes up with regard Mm. to say – Uh, movie uh, producers, and and we've talked about with Picasso, and it's the same thing. And and clearly, you know, especially during this peak period in the 1580s and 1590s, everyone simply looked past all of his flaws as a person, and, you know, made him this incredibly uh, important cultural figure.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think he must, Though this perhaps doesn't come through in the legal documents that survive for obvious reasons. But I think in the flash he must have been incredibly charming or certainly capable of being incredibly charming when he needed to be. Um, because I think otherwise um, the art alone might not have been enough to persuade patron after patron to come to his rescue and bail him out of one financial difficulty after another. Um, uh, but it is yes, it is it is absolutely um, extraordinary um, to think um, uh, just um, just what a, a complicated complicated person he was, and yet how, for decades, Elizabeth's leading courtiers first Robert Dudley, then Robert Devericks, Earl of Essex, then various members of the Cecil family, were really willing to um, give Hilliard. Huge amounts of their own money, but also um, uh, come to his aid and intercede um, with the Queen on his behalf whenever he needed assistance. So I think he must have been. There must have been a charming side to him as well, which, uh, of course, is not going to be the side that, that comes through in in depositions <laughs> and the like. <laughs>
1: To what degree does that, um, though, play a role when you have this huge transition that takes place in 1603? Because you have a court which Hilliard is very well connected to, which he benefits from enormously. And then in 1603, you have Elizabeth's death, and then the arrival of a new king. And we're not talking about a king who grew up and was present at the court with Hilliard, but was... You know, in in effect, imported from Scotland, uh, James the first. How did w- w- how did Hilliard make that tradi- transition, and, and was it a successful transition, or was it one in which he found himself basically on the outs?
0: It's a really interesting question because, as you say, um, James is effectively imported from Scotland. Um, James the sixth of Scotland now becomes James the first of England. Um, but interestingly enough, the transition from Hilliard's point of view is virtually seamless. Um, Elizabeth dies in March 1603. James arrives in the south of England about six weeks later in early May 1603. And it is clear, one of the things that I um, discovered when working on my book is that even before he had reached the south of England, James, probably via Robert Cecil, or Um, who at this point was Hilliard's chief aristocratic patron, Um, James seems to have set things in motion to get Hilliard going, drawing up designs for a new great seal of England, which of course would feature James's image. And once James was actually physically present in the south of England, one of the first things he did was sit to Hilliard for what was to become a, a template for all of the miniatures of James that would be produced in the um, first six or seven years of his reign. And then as events transpired, Hilliard created another template that was in use from about 1610 until about 1615, and then a third template from about 1615 onwards. Um, so what was really interesting to me um, was how proactive James seems to have been about ensuring that Hilliard's services were retained. Um, The conventional wisdom had always been um, in previous biographies that James um, endorsed Hilliard almost as a path of least resistance um, rather than this being a conscious choice. But it was very clear to me from the documents that I examined that it was a conscious choice and presumably designed to help reinforce James's claim to the English throne, and to help reinforce his legitimacy. I mean, what better way to um, suggest a seamless transition of power than to continue to employ the miniaturist, who more than any other um, painter of Elizabeth's reign had. Come to be synonymous with that reign. Um, it's a really savvy way, I think, of suggesting continuity of reign, continuity of power, and also a good way for James to stress his Englishness. James was we know from all sorts of sources, very anxious about his Scottishisms, very worried that he wouldn't be seen as English enough to rule um, in England. And so it's noticeable, for example, that um, Hilliard's, all of Hilliard's miniatures of James um, show him with the blue ribbon of the um, Garter George, a, a potent symbol of um, James's Englishness, so, I think that this was a very self conscious choice on James's part um, to um, employ Hilliard. Um, it was clearly um, a matter of some urgency to James to um, get Hilliard going, producing images of him immediately after Elizabeth died. Um, though James, of course, as you rightly said, didn't grow up in England, um, he would have been familiar with Hilliard's images uh, whilst living in. Scotland. Um, We know that Hilliard images were sent to the Scottish court um, at various points in the 1580s and 1590s as part of various diplomatic negotiations between the English and Scottish courts. We know too that um, James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots, had been portrayed by Hilliard as had um, James's grandmother, Lady Margaret Douglas. So it's entirely possible that James had seen versions of those miniatures as a boy. Um, So he would have had some familiarity with Hilliard's images um, before he arrived in England. And no doubt Robert Cecil, um, who was positioning himself to be a chief counselor to James, and as I mentioned, was already by this date Hilliard's chief aristocratic patron, acted as go-between and helped um, to promote Hilliard's cause. But um, yes, it, it, it is really fascinating how how um, seamless the transition was from Hilliard's point of view. But even though James, unlike Elizabeth, um, was a big spender and always paid Hilliard very promptly and very handsomely for services rendered, still um at james 's court, Hilliard simply could not make ends meet, and um, his finances really just went from bad to worse, culminating as I mentioned earlier in um, a spell in debtors' prison towards the end of his life um, in about sixteen uh, eighteen the year before he died so um a, um, a, a sad um, uh, sort of final year or so for um, for
1: Hilliard. I, I did get the impression he seemed to be more dependent upon royal. Uh, patronage especially after uh, S- uh Cecil died because you mentioned in the book that uh, he didn't catch on, Hillary didn't catch on with with uh, the, uh, James's court favorites in the way that he had with Elizabeth so you mentioned that uh, he only uh, that Somerset only sat for him once uh the Duke of Buckingham exactly. never uh and and Buckingham was 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 a huge uh, a, a, uh, cultural presence in terms of expenditures and yet he never seemed to feel like he, that, that Hilliard was the the guy who must paint him in the way that say uh, so many of Elizabeth's courtiers did
0: Absolutely um, whereas Hilliard had um, had no shortage of patronage from Elizabeth's various favourites um, and had enjoyed the patronage of a very powerful Cecil family um, yes, when Robert Cecil dies in um, 1612 um, this seems to be a fatal blow from which Hilliard, in terms of his finances, never quite recovers. Cecil had been the latest in a long line of leading courtiers who had always bailed Hilliard out at the last minute. There had been other occasions earlier in Hilliard's life when he nearly ended up in, in debtor's prison, but someone had always ridden in to the rescue at the 11th hour. But Cecil dies in 1612, Hilliard's long-suffering wife, Alice, seems to die around the same time, and no doubt to the extent that anybody was able to impose some sort of household management on Hilliard, she had possibly been some sort of restraining force on his expenditures. But I think the double whammy of her death and Robert Cecil's death, the fact that James's courtiers Uh, favorites like Buckingham do not, for whatever reason, embrace Hilliard. Um, This seems to set him on a a, really a downward trajectory financially, from which he never quite recovers. Um, Hilliard, at this point, starts looking to his son, Lawrence, the only one of his seven children to have followed in his footsteps as a miniature painter. And Lawrence, does seem to have tried to impose some financial order on things, but I think really um, by this state, uh, Hilliard's finances were just in such a terrible terrible um situation that there was there was a limit to what Lawrence could do, though Lawrence was much better with money than his father had been, albeit Lawrence wasn't such a talented um, miniature painter. he seems to have got into liming rather reluctantly and to have had his arm rather twisted by by his father, um, but um, but yes, it really is um, uh, after the death of Robert Cecil, um, a, a, a downward trajectory financially for Hilliard. Though he certainly seems to have had no shortage of commissions, though not perhaps from the upper um, ranks of the 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 top rank of courtiers at that stage in the last few years of his life. Mm.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yes, absolutely. I'm in the very early stages of a new book on Hans Holbein the Younger and The Court of Henry VIII, so a sort of prequel, if you will, to um, Hilliard and Elizabeth I. Well,
1: that sounds like a fascinating book. I hope that when you uh, complete it and it's published that uh, we can have you back on the New Books Network.
0: I would love that.
1: Uh, Elizabeth Goldring, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Thanks. You too.